Well, everyone, welcome back to the Ranking Presence Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper, and you might have noticed that Curtis has not joined us today, and that is because we did record this episode of George Bush Part 1, but unfortunately our program crashed on us, so we lost everything. So I'm just going to record the first part myself, although there will be a few things that uh, Curtis will have to say again when we record the second part, but for right now it's just going to be me, so George W. Bush. We've come a long way, and it's crazy to think we are almost to the end, and we are to a president that probably most of you were alive for, or at least knew about. Maybe some of you weren't, you know. It's hard to tell what our uh, age range for our audience is, although I could probably find that information if I just looked it up, but we'll get to that later. Okay, so George W. Bush. Uh, obviously, he's well-known for a couple of things. He's well-known for 9-11, his response to that, the Patriot Act, the Iraq War and a very controversial election. So today we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about his early life, political career, and a little bit about the election of 2000. Okay, so he was born on July 6, 1946, to George Herbert Walker Bush, who you might know as another president, and Barbara Bush. He was their first child. Upon Daddy Bush graduating from Yale University, the Bushes moved to Odessa, Texas, where they rented a tiny apartment which was so small that they shared a bathroom with prostitutes who lived next door. In 1950, they moved to Midland, Texas, which would become W's main home. He was known as Georgie as a young boy, and he lived, to quote the Miller Center, the life of a typical suburban baby boomer that included playing baseball with the neighborhood children. So a pretty standard life for your baby boomer person. In 1953, his three-year-old sister, Robin, caught, got leukemia. Despite the family taking her to a state-of-the-art facility, she died shortly after turning four, a very tragic death. George was kept in the dark about his sister's condition. After this, he became very close to his mother, Barbara, from whom he inherited her quick temper, sharp wit, and blunt opinions. But the Bushes had other children as well, including Neil, Marvin, Dorothy, and most famously, Jeb Bush. You might know Jeb Bush from all the many, many memes about him, and probably most infamously his moment during the 2016 election where he asked the crowd to please clap. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Jeb's an interesting guy, and he'll come up later in the episode. So, George W. Bush would go to Sam Houston Elementary School in Midland, and from there he would then go to attend the private Kincaid School in Houston, Texas. He would go to high school at Phillips Academy Andover in Andover, Massachusetts, where his father had attended school. Unfortunately for the young Bush, this school wasn't a lot of fun. The Miller Center puts it this way. The school was not without drawbacks. Life at the exclusive school was regimented, academically rigorous, cold, snowy, and worst of all, devoid of female students. Quite potentially the worst thing to happen. Now, Bush learned to be self-sufficient, but initially struggled in his studies. He received a zero on his first written assignment at the academy, and he would later learn to overutilize the thesaurus in order to boost his vocabulary. Unfortunately, Bush became very frightened of failing and embarrassing his family, and this is pretty common, I'd say, in, like, upper-crust families, especially ones with as big of a name recognition as Bush. If you're a kid in those, it's expected you're going to succeed, and if you don't, well, then you're the shame on the family. Like, think of, you know, if FDR had trouble in school. That would have looked bad on the Roosevelt name. So, in order to keep up his family name, he worked after lights out by using the little light that came through the hallway to study. However, he had a natural ability to make friends easily, 
and he developed a great love for American history. He would later say, I could make friends and make my way no matter where I found myself in life. Now I came to college. It was obvious he would follow in his forefather's steps to go to Yale. But while he was in Yale, he helped his father run for the Senate, where he learned the basics of grassroots politics. <laughs> I believe most famously he said he had a C out. He maintained a nice C average in Yale. It might have been a D average, so <laughs> don't quote me on that. So at Yale, he engaged in work hard, play hard with a major in history. He particularly enjoyed reading about the Soviet Union and what he saw as a struggle between tyranny and freedom. He was also involved in the Delta Kappa Epsilon Society, Delta, bleh, Delta Kappa Epsilon Fraternity, and was involved in the secret society Skull and Bones. Conspiracy theorists, you can start making your theories now. He did try to do baseball, but wasn't very good, so he did rugby instead. He was also engaged briefly to a woman named Catherine Wolfman, but according to the Miller Center, they parted amicably. So, you know, maybe it was amicable, maybe Daddy paid her off. Who's to say? <laughs> he graduated in 1968, right in the middle of the Vietnam War, as well as the assassinations of MLK Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. So, naturally, this was a pretty chaotic time during American history. But, since his father had been in the military, it was expected for George W. Bush to sign up as well. So, he signed up for the National Guard and got to be stationed in the Air National Guard. So, here's the weird thing about it. If you're in the National Guard, you typically had to have connections to get in. And if you're in the National Guard, well, you're, you're not going to go to Vietnam. So people have argued that he used his connections to avoid actually serving in a combat role. And especially, you know, the Bush name got in places. So he's been criticized for that, certainly. So, but following Yale, he got an MBA at Harvard and then headed back to work as a landman for an oil company. In 1970, head back home to work as a landman for one company. In 1977, he founded Arbusto Energy. He would write in his book about the experience of the oil industry. I learned how to manage, how to set clear goals, and work with people to achieve them. I learned the human side of capitalism. I felt responsible for my employees and tried to treat them fairly and well. And yes, I will be going in and out with a George W. Bush accent, so bear with me. However... As a young man, he was known for loving the booze, as well as living in a messy bachelor apartment. But at a barbecue, he was introduced to Laura Welch. They would have their first date playing miniature golf. Laura was calmer and more balanced compared to George's energetic personality. After a few months, they got married on November 5th, 1977. Now, they had some trouble conceiving children initially until 1981 they had their twins, which they named Barbara and Jenna after the girls' grandmothers. He would join the Methodist Church after his children's birth. Prior to this, his religious views were not all that important to them. He has been baptized at Yale, and his parents had taken in a Presbyterian Episcopal church as a youth, but none of them really made much of an impact in his life. But... At one point, Billy Graham met with the George the Bushes at the Bushes' vacation home in Kennebunkport, Maine. George was moved by Billy Graham's faith, and he began to attend Wednesday night Bible studies. Now, of course, as I mentioned, alluded to before, George W. Bush was now a colic, and he was arrested for drunk driving in 1976 near Maine. But this news would come out later in the 2000 election, and I will talk about that later. But on Bush's 40th birthday, he tried to do his normal three-mile morning run, but he found he couldn't do it due to his severe hangover from his birthday. He would write about this in his book, Decision Points. 
My problem is not only drinking, it was selfishness. The booze was leading me to put up myself ahead of others, especially my family. Fate showed me a way out. I knew I could count the grace of God to help me change. I would not be easy, but by the end, I made up my mind. I was done drinking. So let's talk about his political career, switch gears a little bit. When it comes to politics, obviously we've seen that Bush hadn't had much experience yet. Now, he was a traveling aide to Congressman Edward Gurney's Senate campaign in Florida, and he helped serve as a political director to Red Blonde's campaign in Alabama. In 1976, he also volunteered for Gerald Ford in West Texas primary, but couldn't get any delegates for him. Then he heard that George Mahon, who is representative of Midland, Texas, was retiring, so he entered the race. During this race, he became friends with a certain man known as Carl Rove, who would later become his strategist. Pay attention to that name, Carl Rove. It's going to be important later. So Bush won the primary but lost the general election. But during this election, people noticed his skill. Doug Hanna, who was a friend of Bush, said about this campaign cycle, He loved it, and he was having a great time. My shock was that he was such a good speaker. I started to notice he sounded just like his father. If you closed your eyes, you heard his father. When his father ran for election in 1988, Bush moved to D.C. to help out his dad. He would defend his father in speeches, but after his father won that election, he went back to Texas. In 1989, he would purchase the Texas Rangers baseball team, which he would be able to sell in 98 for $15 million profit. In 1992, W. was back to help out against his dad against Bill Clinton. But as we know from the Bill Clinton episode, go and listen to those two episodes, Daddy Bush lost that election. After this, George began thinking perhaps he should get involved in politics. After all, in Texas, he had ideas about education and school funding, and he wanted to challenge Governor Ann Richards. In addition, Texas was becoming heavy in lawsuits, and there was lots of payments going out. Bush thought he could handle this, as well as limiting the amount of money given in civil cases, such as medical malpractice. He got together with Carl Rove to discuss his options. So he went after Ann on a few issues. One was the, on her Robin Hood, what, quote, Robin Hood education bill, which was designed to take from rich and give to poor districts, which Bush saw as not being effective. But this was going to be a tough election. Ann was a very popular governor, and his own mother, Barbara Bush, advised her son against it. During the campaign, Bush worked on issues such as education, juvenile justice, welfare, and tort reform. Unfortunately, he went on a bird hunt and shot an endangered killdeer bird, so a bit of an oof. He was able to laugh at himself, but Richards called Bush, quote, some jerk and a shrub who was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Which I gotta say, that's a great zinger. That is a fantastic zinger. Now, Bush, for his part, said he wouldn't lose his cool, and that people want professional-sounding politicians, not one who are going to throw out insults like Ann Richards. And I have to say, okay... This is a little ironic considering modern politics, which is, well, modern politics is in the last couple of cycles that is defined by these sorts of insults. It is really interesting to see how politics has changed, and we're going to see that especially as we continue in this episode. But, all that being said, shockingly, Bush won that election, which caused New York Times to label it a stunning upset. His mother gave Bush a letter of congratulations and cufflinks from his father that he had gotten well in the Navy. So essentially, the father is passing on almost the mantle to the son. Bush, in turn, put up a painting called A Charge to Keep, which featured men on horseback on a hard trail, which he believed would set the tone for his governorship. So as governor, Bush had to work with Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock, who was a powerful Democrat. Bush would try to work across the aisle, despite the fact that Bob Bullock had a massive temper. 
But Bush's good humor diffused most of the situation. During his first term, they got welfare and juvenile justice reform, and were able to compromise at $750,000 for tort reform. On education, they passed a bill adding choice and competition to school systems, as well as working on efforts to ensure every children could read, as well as a list of knowledge and skill requirements. This is kind of almost a precursor to No Child Left Behind, which is, if you're in the education field and you're around for this time, you probably have some pretty strong opinions about that. So we'll, we'll save that for the next episode. As governor, he would also pass tax cuts and offer funding for faith-based initiatives such as church social services. Another slightly controversial thing about George W. Bush. In 1998, he ran again as governor on the platform of, quote, compassionate conservatism. Now, what was so different about compassionate conservatism? Well, it was still had that focus on small government and free market, but it had the sort of veneer that this is about niceness. It's not about this mean spirit of conservatism. This is conservatism that reaches across the aisle. He won 69% of the vote, and his brother, Jeb, won in Florida the same night, which is a pretty big deal, two brothers winning elections in separate states as governor on the same night. But later, he heard a sermon in which the minister was talking about Moses and him leading the people, the people out of the Egypt to the is to the choke promised land. Blech, sorry, and his mother turned at him at that moment and said, "He's speaking about you," because the minister was talking about seizing every moment. So George W. Bush got this idea that maybe he needed to run for president. But before we talk about that, let's switch gears again and talk about his personality and religious beliefs. So let's turn to our good old friend, The Presidential Ham, one of our favorite websites that always has great insights. So what's The Ham got to say about him? So I'm going to quote from this. Bush dresses conservatively, but often sports a silver belt buckle and cowboy boots and hat. He never dresses down for public appearances, but he sometimes dresses casually in meet reporters and of course wears a jogging suit when he runs. When he was younger, he did not always take as much care in his dress. His post-college dressing style has been described as indifferent, careless, wretched, and ratty. <laughs> a tarnished bush. <laughs> the Elden Ring reference for those who don't know. Perhaps his careless dress came as a result of his rebellion against having to follow jacket and tie dress codes in prep school and college. His sartorial epiphany came, apparently, when he first ran for a public office. Bush is a good public speaker, but like his father, he occasionally mangles English language. So, Bush is obviously known for something known as Bushisms, which are one of his many, 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 many gaffes. So, the way the ham describes it is, he has a history of malapropism, bizarre grammar, and statements with a sort of backwards logic. The following are a few notable quotes by him during his 2000 campaign. I understand small business growth. I was one. They misunderestimated me. Rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? I think if you know what you believe, it makes it a lot easier to answer questions. I can't answer your questions. <laughs> Which is like, if you think about it for a second, it's like, so that means you don't know what you believe. <laughs> I do know if I'm ready for the job. And if not, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> you gotta give it to Bush. Like, these Bushisms, I feel, even though people made fun of him for it, it was almost kind of like a folksy kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, he's just, he's a goofball. But he's kind of funny and endearing. Now, despite his verbal gaffes, Bush is considered a good communicator. He speaks with something of a Texas drawl and is best when he reads from a teleprompter. And is more likely to misspeak when he ad-libs or answers questions. So as for his personality, he's lively and outgoing. He has a quick whip and tells frequent jokes. 
thus enabling strangers to feel at ease in his presence. When he was younger, he was considered the life of the party, going to great lengths to generate fun. Friends of Bush think that he took on the fun persona while trying to cheer up his mother after his sister's death from leukemia when he was seven years old. So essentially trying, you know, be, be the clown in the family to really cheer things up. He's often described as a late bloomer since his devil-may-care attitude towards his life until he was about 40 years old. Yeah, it took him, took him a while to sort of mature, even though he was involved in all these business ventures. While he was a young man, he was generally lived the life of a playboy, dating a variety of women and partying hard. He was often apt to make outrageous statements, once telling the Queen of England that he was the black sheep of the family and asked her who was the black sheep of her family, which is generally not the question you want to ask the Queen of England. He could be obnoxious when he drank too much, and once challenged his father to a fight, which Elder Bush only expressed his disappointment in his son. So, side note here, the movie W actually shows the scene, and they kind of dramatize it, where Daddy Bush is about ready to throw down, then Barbara Bush, you know, breaks up the fight. But the whole his dad just expressing disappointment, that's kind of like, <laughs> that's, that's emotional damage right there, when you challenge your old man with fisticuffs, and he just says... I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> so after his marriage and the birth of his two daughters, Bush began to mature. He may have been drinking too much because the reversals of his oil company had been ongoing. And his wife, War, warned that she would leave him if it did not ease up on the drinking. And after a particularly bad hangover, he quit drinking and says he hasn't had a drink since. And the year before, he rekindled his interest in religion. Despite reversals in his life, such as those he suffered in the oil business, Bush's self-confidence has never flagged. He's a well-centered person, knowing who and what he is and what he's capable of accomplishing. He's punctual and likes to maintain schedules, such as getting up and feeding the family animals in the morning and running at lunchtime. Now, for all these reasons, quote, what is his enneagram? I'd say he's probably a type six because he's that hardworking, engaging, responsible type. Even though he was a bit of, you know, playboy back in the day, but he, he's shaped up. Now, of course, religiously, here's the thing. People consider him to be like this big evangelical president because that's a large reason why he was elected, this evangelical energy. And at one point during his campaign, he did call Jesus Christ his favorite political philosopher. But when it comes down to his actual views, they might surprise you. So let's take a few quotes from interviews with George W. Bush. First one from Al-Arabia, where he said, Well, well, first of all, I believe in an almighty God. And I believe that all the world, whether it be Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, prays the same God. That's what I believe. I believe Islam is a great religion that preaches peace. And in a 2004 interview with Charles Gibson, Charles Gibson asked him, Do we all worship the same God, Christian Muslim? George W. Bush. Well, I think we do. Charles Gibson. Do Christians, non-Christians, and Muslims go to heaven in your mind? Yes, they do. We have different routes of getting there. So George W. Bush, his religious beliefs are a little different than most people would expect. And... He's, a, he's, he's definitely more interesting than I expected. I mean, we, I say that about every single president we cover, but there's always something new to find. So let's talk a little bit about the 2000 election. So, 2000 election. Obviously, Bill Clinton was popular after dealing with all the Monica Linsky stuff, but it's been eight years with Bill Clinton, and people people are starting to want to change. And the scandal still affects, still impacts his legacy, obviously. So when Al Gore, his VP, decided to run, Al Gore was going to run into some issues because you got all that baggage. So Al Gore tries to really distance himself from the Clintons. In fact, he only mentions him once during his acceptance speech. 
Now, as for George W. Bush, he was actually a favorite to win because he had a lot of charisma and he had a lot of political grassroots movements and he had Karl Rove working for him. So in their first debate between Bush and Gore, Bush made a really strong effort to try to tie Al Gore to the political establishment, which, I mean, he was. Whereas Gore said Bush was a friend of the rich with little experience in governing, especially at the federal level. And that's pretty much fair. I mean, he was a two-term governor, which that's a lot more political experience than a lot of presidents have, but it's not a huge amount of political experience, ultimately. Now, of course, Gore sighed at several of Bush's responses during the first debate, and he frequently interrupted his opponents, which made him seem over-eager and unprofessional, to quote the Miller Center. And let, let me stop here. Okay. This is honestly... <laughs> to quote Curtis, well, you won't, you won't hear this because we lost that episode, but he said this was a lot of pearl clutching, and I agree. Compared to elections nowadays, well, with the Trump effect, he's the elephant in the room, <laughs> pun intended. A sign and interrupting your opponent a couple times doesn't seem that big of a deal. This, But this was a different era. We have to remember that at this point, the internet was really coming on its... It wasn't even mainstream at this moment. So people weren't used to the sort of volatile discourse you get in, in the internet age. And I'll, I'll come back to this later, because let's continue talking about the 2000 election. Okay, so Governor Bush felt optimistic about his chances. Before, advisor and confidant Karen Hughes approached him five days before the election with news that the re a reporter discovered a drunk driving citation Bush had received years ago. He had considered disclosing the DUI earlier his political career, but he decided against it because, as he claimed, he didn't want his daughters to know about his irresponsible behavior. He would say, not, disclo not disclosing the DUI on my term may have been the single costliest political mistake I ever made. And he would layer issue a really pithy statement saying, I was pulled over, I met the policeman I've been drinking, I paid a fine, and I regret that it happened, but it did, I learned my lesson. And let's be clear here. I don't believe for a second he didn't tell it to, you know, not affect his daughters. He did it because he that he knew that could sink his political career. And he worried that this might have, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> cost him the presidency. Karl Rove estimated that approximately 3 million people, especially evangelical Christians, stayed home and changed their vote during the discourse. During the five days following the announcement, Bush actually lost the four-point lead he had held in the polls. And I gotta say, once again... This is kind of crazy to think about, that he lost his lead, essentially, because of this issue. Now, to be fair, it's a big political issue, but compared to, again, compared to Trump, it's like, eh, this is kind of small potatoes. Now, of course, we have to talk a little bit about the election night. So, the major news networks initially called the key Bragon states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Florida for Gore, which allowed Gore to win. Now, Florida's polls hadn't even closed, and Carl Rome maintained that the early call was flawed. At about 10 p.m. Eastern Time, CNN and CBS rescinded the early call of Florida. And then at 2.15, the network's advisor called Florida in favor of Bush. Then Gore called Bush to concede. But before all this happened, the Governor Jeb Bush checked the networks to find that the margin of Florida was nearing once again. And subsequently, Bush called Gore again, and in a terse conversation, Gore told Bush that he was retracting his concession, as numbers in Florida kept changing. By 4.30 in the morning, Gore had sent a team of lawyers to Florida to oversee a recount, Bush and an emissary as well, and the recount was on. 
So the recount had a lot of problems because the state of Florida found it was really inconsistent in how votes were counted. And infamously, it was kind of confusing because in certain areas, it was con you couldn't really tell who you were voting for because there was one where Pat Buchanan was technically the second dot right before Al Gore. So it was confusing. And, it, and one county that was particularly Gore-heavy, a, a couple thousand people voted for Pat Buchanan. And people called thought this was questionable. And, of course, you know, it, it, it was all very inconsistent how they were doing the recount. So the Florida Supreme Court initially ruled in 4-3 to three in favor of Gore's plea for selective recount. Bush then went to the Supreme Court. On December 12th, the High Court made two decisions. By a vote of 7-2, they found the Florida's inconsistent recount process violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution's Amendment. But then... By 5-4, to four, the court ruled there was no fair way to recount the votes in Florida in time for the state's votes to be counted electoral college. The election results would stand, and by just a few hundred votes, Bush won Florida. He won 271 electoral votes to Gore's 266. But Gore won half a million more popular votes than American people. So, infamously, people consider this to be illegitimate immediately. In fact, the Congressional Black Caucus protested during the official counting of the ballots in the House of Representatives. So let's let's talk about this for a second. I think this is very shady, the fact that the Supreme Court ordered them to stop the recount. Because when you have something this close and you say, well, let's stop the recount so that essentially let's get on with the election, it's like, no, you should really you should really delay that because that's pretty important when it's that narrow of a margin in one state that determines the election. And the fact the Supreme Court did this is just I get why they did it, but it's very disconcerting to me, and I think it raises a lot of questions about the legitimacy. Like, did Bush legitimately win the election of 2000, or was it because of Florida's inconsistent processes and the fact that his brother was governor of Florida? It's just a very suspicious circ circumstance, and it's I, I'm not qualified to say if the election was stolen or whatever, but it certainly is suspicious. So Bush began his presidency on kind of a bad note that way. And of course, as we'll learn later, the following year, well, really, you know, a few months down the road, 9-11 happens, which we'll talk more about next time. So that was what I had for George W. Bush's first part. And in lieu of a final caucus, well, I actually did have a final caucus, but because it's just me, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the idea of compassion conservatism and Bush in general. So... Compassion conservatism, as I mentioned earlier, is what Bush ran on and what he ran on as president. But is this idea really alive today? I don't really think so. If you look at the Republican Party of today and, you know, the Democratic Party too, I don't really see a lot of this, you know, let's be this compassionate energy and reach across the aisle. Especially in the Republican Party now, it's it seems very vitriolic. And to go back to a previous point I had, I think a big reason for this is the advent of social media. The social media really didn't come on its own until the Obama years. And Obama, being an African-American president, I believe there was a backlash against him based on race. And I'll talk more about his actual policy when we get to Barack Obama. And for those of, us, for those of you who think we're biased, yes, we do lean towards the left. That's obvious. But we're going to judge Barack Obama as fairly as he can. And I don't necessarily think he's going to be in the top tier. I'll just say that right now. But I could be proven wrong. But anyway, so social media came on its own during Barack Obama's presidency. And after that, I noticed a huge spike in really vitriolic political discourse. 
And I believe social media might play a role in this because before then, you still had the baby boomer mentality of like, you know, politics, yes, it's it's a nasty game, but there's still like these rules of decorum. And I think social media added an element that maybe tossed that aside a little bit, but that's just a theory I have. So that was George W. Bush Part 1. Again, I apologize for this unique format, but I hope you enjoyed it just listening to me for now. But if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can at President's Rank, with capital PNR. And also, if you are so inclined, you can you know give us a little something on Patreon at Ranking U.S. Presidents on Patreon. So once again, I want to thank you all listeners for joining us. I am Bradley Cooper. And stay rankin'. Rank.